You're listening to the North American Francophone Podcast, hosted in English by Claire-Marie Brisson and proudly recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'd like to start this episode with a question. How do you see Quebec? For many of my listeners, you might see Quebec as a contemporary place that you know very well. Maybe because you live there, maybe because you visited there, or maybe because you're just interested in the region. For others, you may see Quebec as a very historical place. Your family may have come from there, or you may be a North American history buff. At this point in time, however, I noticed that people in Quebec see themselves for their future. It's combined with their past, it's combined with their present, but the forward-thinking Quebecois mentality is very clearly represented, particularly in the name of the majority party that is in the Assemblée Nationale entitled the Coalition Avenir Québec, or the Coalition for Québec's Future. I think that Québec has seen itself not only for its past or its present, but for the future imaginings that Québécois people have for themselves. The combined importance of past, present, and future all playing at once on the contemporary Québécois identity is a very important thing to underscore here. The fact that there is no clear-cut temporality, that there is an homage to the past, a consciousness of the present, and also a conceptualization of the future, I argue, is a very unique perspective. I think that the Québécois identity and the Québécois outlook point to a word that was coined by the internet community, and it sounds like it comes from ancient Greek. That word is anemoia. It's nostalgia for a time you've never known. There is a nostalgia for a time that Québécois have never known or never experienced because it was either in the past or in the future. At present, they're viewing a time where they could act in so many ways to change the future because of things that they know from the past. If we think of a similar term, nostalgia, we know that it does not represent the actual past, but rather a positive past as we imagine it. It is fantasy, and its yearnings are not for times we really experienced, but for an idyllic time that we think we missed out on. And so, if we think about a future nostalgia, it sort of seems wrong to pair the two words because nostalgia is talking about the past. But if we were to think about a future nostalgia, it could imply that people feel an overwhelming sense of longing for a time beyond their own, for a time where better things are happening, and for a time where maybe there's more social acceptance, more cultural acceptance, and better things are coming. The idea of nostalgia is very present in the literature and the cinema of Quebec, and I would like to recommend a book to you that is coming out in June of 2020. It's entitled Cinema of Pain on Quebec's Nostalgic Screen. It's edited by Liz Schack and André Loisel, and its description says... The loss of a cohesive nationalistic vision in the province has led many Québécois to use their ancestral origins to inject meaning into their everyday lives. A cinema of pain argues that this phenomenon is observable in a pervasive sense of nostalgia in Québec culture and is especially present in the province's vibrant but deeply wistful cinema. 
In Quebecois cinema, nostalgia not only denotes a sentimental longing for the bucolic pleasures of bygone French-Canadian traditions, but, as this edited collection suggests, it evokes the etymological sense of the term, which underscores the element of pain, which comes from the Greek algos, associated with the longing for a return home, nostos. The notion of a future nostalgia is most clearly present in the science fiction genre. Science fiction that has been written in Quebec offers in-depth analyses of how narratives of colonization and post-colonial societies denounce overarching colonial systems, celebrate pluralism, and hope for a better future. I am fortunate to talk today to a science fiction writer who is Franco-American, and more specifically, Franco-Californian, whose themes also intersect the science fiction that is clearly present in Quebec, but also with his own spin. As a Franco-American, he is viewing Quebec, he is not in Quebec, and he offers a new futuristic vision of what Quebec could be like in Glass House, which is a short story of a father and daughter fighting over the last snow-covered maples that are preserved under glass in what is known as a glass house, and whether to unlock the door and release them into a post-independence French-Canadian future. In this futuristic tale, the independence referendum has passed, Quebec is now its own separate entity, and alongside the many changes that have come with this futuristic vision of a separate, independent Quebec, there is also a different climate that surrounds it. That is why the glass house is so important. It's preserving the climate that once existed in Canada. In the futuristic vision that Argent Mathieu has created, you'll see that the coldest parts of Canada are now producing wine, and that the people who are living there really have no memory of what it was like to have a Canada that we know today. And so, I think that Argent Mathieu provides an interesting futuristic nostalgia for a Quebec that could be, but also a warning for what Quebec might have to endure in the years to come. Today, I'd like to welcome Argent Mathieu to the North American Francophone Podcast. And Argent Mathieu, how are you today? Doing just fine this morning. Thank you. Wonderful. So Argent Mathieu is a Franco-American author or an author who engages with Franco-American topics. So first, a question about yourself. How did you start engaging with these topics and more specifically with your story, Glass House, French-Canadian topics? Well, as I've said elsewhere, I started engaging with Franco-American topics on the first day of second grade when Mrs. Gallagher told us all that we would be putting our full names on our homework. And I threw my hand in the air and wailed, but I can't spell my last name because it's a, it's a very French name. And I grew up in California, which is very much not a French place. But uh, honestly, it got started when I was about... 17 and I started studying French in community college and discovered not only French culture but French Canadian culture. I went in because I wanted to read Les Miserables in the original French and along the way I discovered La Petite Ville, Dans une Galaxie Après de Trois, 
and uh, the music of Fatim Souriant and Messayou. And I discovered this whole French-Canadian culture, which I had never known about, in which my great-grandfather had come from. And that began my love affair with Quebec and with my ethnicity. And so because of that, do you think you started researching a little bit of your own family's past and got a little bit more connected to that, even though you were in California? Oh, absolutely. My grandpapa has actually just moved out here from Virginia to live closer to family. And he told me that I was the first person to speak French to him in about 40 years and how touched he was. And then when I presented him with Glass House at the Christmas party, he opened it and spot translated it into French as he was reading aloud. That's incredible. And I can't even describe how, how deeply touched I felt to, to hear his voice reading my story in the language it actually takes place in. That is such a wonderful experience. And, and, and you know, I feel like you're sort of revisiting something that is close to heart how did you start writing Glass House? Was this something where you're thinking about your own family, you're thinking about current events? I just completed a story that requested high adventure. And when I heard about solar punk winters, it had to be solar punk, so it had to have that sense of hope and it had to have that certain moment of discovery when the new landscape is revealed to the viewpoint character for the first time. And it had to be, you know, related to winter. And I turned this into a story of clashing cultures disguised as a story about ecology. Very nice. And there is in Glass House a futuristic sense of environment that I picked up on fairly early and communities surrounding elements that are staples in modern Canadian identity. Now, if you'll allow, I'd like to read an excerpt for my listeners. This is an excerpt from Glass House. It says, Beneath the polarized sky, the color of granite and the bright, fragile haze of the indoor cloud cover, the landscape was impossibly crisp and clear. The snow glittered like a billion diamonds from the rolling ground, and from the huddled cluster of steep roofs near the lock and from the bare branches of maples, real maples, Asur Sakaram, not like the sapless warm weather maples outside. And so that is written from the perspective of this glass house. How did you think to write about this topic? In the beginning, Marie-Pierre recites the, uh, the story of Caris, the uh, Breton legend of the city that sank beneath the sea. And in the story of Kara East, the, the young princess, who steals the key from around her father, the king's neck, and goes and opens up the locks that let in the sea. And I wanted to play with those elements, so I came up with the idea of instead of liquid water, it's snow, because that's more Canadian. And instead of letting the sea in, it's letting winter out, which requires winter to be under glass. And those maples and that snow and just to do snowshoeing and the uh, cabana sucre that they have built in there. This is all a preserved version of a very old Quebec that may never have existed. And the ecological elements are there to sort of enforce the proper character and uh, to create the appropriate sense of community and your relationship to the world outside, where you have to huddle together in the walls behind La Citadelle de Quebec in order to survive the winter together. And that's 
what the character is trying to create. And as much as uh, Dr. Carvo wants to preserve Canadian ecology, he wants to preserve French Canadian culture within that ecology a lot more. That's very interesting. And, you know, thinking about trees, I'm also thinking about the word racine or root from French. Do you think that there might be some connections to that as well, thinking about, you know, preserving these roots, preserving these cultural norms in this text? Very much so. Like I said, it's a it's a story about culture clash disguised as a story about ecology. And in a rapidly changing world, both linguistically and ecologically, Dr. Corvo is trying to root down and preserve this form of life that he considers indispensable. Throughout the story, speaking about these differences, these clashes between English language and French language communication and norms, what motivated you to concentrate on English language and French language communication and primarily write this text in English? Well, the reason I wrote this text primarily in English is because that's what the market was being printed in. And I actually wrote about the um, difficulties and the trickiness involved in this in a blog post I called Multilingualism in Mono. Like in my, in my household, we speak both French and English. My wife also speaks Hebrew. And uh, we're pushing and pulling and trading between the three languages all the time. At one point I joked, in our house, it's compliant with Law 101. And I spent five years in China teaching English where there was constantly this push and pull of whose language is getting spoken, and more importantly, who gets to practice their second language in this conversation. The interplay between languages is never far from my mind. And in this story, I got to really dramatize and use the texture of Canadian multilingualism as a way of expressing character and as a way of uh, creating setting and theme. How a character uses French in Glasshouse tells you a lot about that person, and I had to render that entirely in English, which was an interesting trick. I can imagine, and as a reader of your piece, there are times where there are italicized words that are in French, but then there are certain code switching that I feel exists within the dialogue that isn't italicized. There are norms that a French speaker would use when speaking English in English, and that came out very clearly in your text as well. And there are also possessives in the text where, you know, you say the coat of you, for example, and and things that you would only say in French that in English sound a little bit out of place, but in this story feels so in place. I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, That was... That was exactly what I was aiming for, and it's always a pleasure to hear that you've succeeded in the job you set out to do. My mother likes to tell the story of when uh, one of her English teachers in college took her paper to the front of the room to use as a uh, you know, public example of what not to do, and as she was diagramming the sentences, she found that all of them were technically correct, and finally looked up and just exasperatedly told my mother, but no one would ever express it the way you do. And I was definitely channeling that, especially with Mackenzie trying so valiantly to speak French. And I'm wondering if your own experience as a French learner is maybe reflected in some of those characters. Did you also have that feeling um, when you were learning French? 
Very much so. And especially there's a point when Mackenzie is giving her long scientific explanation where she absolutely nails phrases like albedo and refraction index and struggles with basic grammar because that is exactly how it works, especially if it's like English and French and you share a lot of the technical language where you can kind of guess, um, index de refraction. Oh, what? Oh, what? <laughs> Yeah, and it seems like your text is very intentional and carefully written. I mean, it seems that you are trying to compare a person who feels a little bit uncomfortable with this environment to somebody who is totally naturally comfortable with it. And it almost seems like the characters are themselves glass houses. Could you maybe comment on that perception that I had of the text? Huh. So, in terms of the characters themselves being glass houses, I suddenly understand Dr. Okorovo's hostility toward Mackenzie because she is carrying everything he hates about summer inside her. She's carrying those sapless trees, even though she wants proper maples that are full of sap, she is carrying something of those sapless trees inside her. She's carrying that winter that rotted away the Gaspé Peninsula from under everyone's feet. She is carrying the English inside her. Whereas Marie-Pierre, if I look at her as a glass house, she's a chien québécois. She is a new and very different identity of Quebec, but you know, reading a lot of Québécois newspapers, I feel that this is a, a, a fair assertion, she speaks French like a native and she eats poutine. So she's much more, she's much more one of us than, you know, an Anglo-Canadian, especially after an independence referendum that succeeds. But still, she's descended from very recent immigration. She's visibly black, as comes up a couple of times in the story. But at the same time, she's cool, she's well-educated, and she makes absolutely no secret of wanting to be President de la République one of these days. And maybe to give the listeners a sense of the time and the feeling, what has happened around the story? What is the context of sort of the social or the political environment that the characters are in? The social environment is that Quebec had a third referendum. This one succeeded. The separation was frigid, but not openly acrimonious. And Quebec got to possess its military installations relatively peaceably. And uh, everyone hooted and hollered for a bit. But then the slow, inexorable crush of Anglo-American culture, norms, and economy started rolling in because I feel that's what would actually happen if Quebec ever did become independent. The combined cultural and economic might of Anglo-Canada and America would just roll back French within a couple of generations. And this is also in the context of a changing world where the trees retreat farther and farther north every year. And it's muggy and rainy in Montreal in the middle of December. So it's definitely an environment that if somebody is familiar with Quebec today or Canada in general today, that would be a little bit, I don't know, scary to see. And it also sort of reflects the idea of possible climate change in the future. Do you think that 
readers who are concerned with climate issues would find that in this text as well? Absolutely. Just a literary note, one of the best opening lines in all of genre fiction is, of course, it was a bright morning in April and the clocks were just striking 13 from 1984. And I wanted to evoke that for anyone who had ever been in winter in Canada. Wait, rainy, muggy, December, Montreal, something very bad has happened. Yes. Yes. Um, in terms of environmental concerns, uh, I write a lot of solar punk. I swim in it. Um, and I like to play, I like to play with futures that aren't dystopias and they definitely aren't apocalypses. They are a bit ragged at the edges and they're definitely run down. And I like to play with weird side effects of climate change like uh one of my favorite tells is offhandedly mentioning a bottle of the yellow knife southfields because you can now grow grapes in yellow knife that's bad but also yellow knife southfields that's just weird and i read a lot of history and my general impression isn't that things necessarily get better or worse although they can but they do always get weirder and climate change is going to bring immense tragedy and like any immense tragedy many many acts of unsung heroism and also it will make everything a lot weirder i live in california it's likely to be desert by the time uh, mackenzie and marie pierre climb in that prius and head north so back in 2006 it was the year the world kept ending because in science fiction apocalypses and dystopias just swept the awards that year and this kicked off about 10 straight years of a monotonous run of dystopias and apocalypses in science fiction literature that as always percolated out into the rest of sci-fi culture in 2015 some folks over on tumblr came up with what they called the solar punk manifesto which was about humans solving the overwhelming changes brought on by climate change like political authoritarianism and you know famine and disease but stories of humans and human communities solving this so because i don't deal in dystopias or apocalypses i deal in hope i'm a science fiction writer that is literally my job and the the key trope to solar punk like i said before is that moment when the new landscape is unveiled before the protagonist. And uh, in Glasshouse, it's uh, coming over the ridge and looking down in Point Tyon for the first time. It's always about this sense of wonder and spectacle and the sense of hope that human beings can, in fact, solve their own problems. And I'm very excited to think about the combination of those problems, that community, and then also thinking about the English language, the French language communication, the communities that sort of find themselves facing one another in this work. Exactly. Well, I'm sure many of my listeners are eager to read your work, and where can they expect to? My clearinghouse is rjeanmathieu.com. That's R-J-E-A-N. M-A-T-H-I-E-U dot com. I'm also on Patreon as Arjan Mathieu. 
and I'm on Twitter as uh, True Roscoe. Great. And I'm sure that listeners are going to engage with you right away. Thank you again so much, Arjan Mathieu, for coming onto our show today and discussing your work. It was very interesting. Merci beaucoup, uh, Claire Marie.